I'd like to read from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, this morning, beginning at verse 1, and I'll read down through verse 12. And again, he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noised that he was in the house. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door, and he preached the word unto them. And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why did this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, and take up thy bed, and walk? But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. This passage of Scripture, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, we're going to be asking the question, what about forgiveness of sin? As I mentioned last Sunday, we're starting this short series, looking at the Gospel of Mark, and it's our desire to look to this Gospel to find biblical answers to puzzling questions. As we said last week, the Gospel of Mark was written sometime between 57 and 63 AD, and it was written to primarily the Roman audience, depicting Jesus Christ as the perfect servant. It's the shortest Gospel, having just 16 chapters or 678 verses, but it's an action-packed one that touches on highlights all throughout the book. Last week we noted there were nine different events mentioned in the first chapter of Mark. And today, we notice here in chapter 2, there are four more. They are the healing of the paralyzed man, here in verses 1 through 12. And in verses 13 through 20, we have the call of Levi. Verses 21 and 22, the parables of the cloth and the bottles. And verses 23 through 28, the discourse on Jesus being the Lord of the Sabbath. Well, we note here at the beginning of our text, Jesus returned to Capernaum after an extended period of preaching throughout Galilee. We know this according to Mark chapter 1, verse 39, which says he preached in their synagogues throughout Galilee and cast out devils. Well, now he's made his way back into the city of Capernaum, a city that he visited more frequently than any other city in his earthly ministry. But he came now to what we believe to be the house of Simon Peter. The story tells us that word got out that Jesus was there. And it's interesting to note, as Jesus gained in popularity, wherever he went, it didn't take long for word to spread around that Jesus was nearby or approaching. 
As a result, people started to come to the house. As many as could gathered into the house to be able to see Jesus. Others stood outside. And this story tells us about a paralyzed man who was brought on a pallet or a bed by his four friends. But before we get going, I want you to notice something. As we look here in Mark chapter 2, verse 1, And again he entered into Capernaum after some days. It was noise that he was in the house, and straightway men who were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them, no, not so much as about the door. And notice this last phrase. And he preached the word unto them. Now, no doubt, there were people who had come to this, this house for the purpose of having a particular need met whether it was being healed of some infirmity or for whatever reason. And also, others came just to view, just to see. They were curious, and they wanted to see Jesus. The point is, a lot of folks gathered, but notice Jesus deferred to his primary mission, which was to preach to them the word. There were many people in this room that needed help, that had concerns, that had needs. And we see there was one specifically that came on the scene after everybody started to gather. But Jesus first gave attention to that which was most important, the soul's need of these individuals. By doing that, we see Jesus reveals one of the greatest flaws of humanitarian organizations the worldwide. You see, it doesn't matter how much money can be raised. It doesn't matter how many goods can be collected or how many volunteers can be enlisted to bring relief to the poor and the suffering masses around the world. Without Christ... All of this help that they receive is temporary, it's short-lived, and their greatest need is being overlooked. Their need, yes, is to be fed and to be clothed and to be housed and to be cared for medically, but their greatest need is to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Their greatest need is to be exposed to the Word of God. And Jesus did exactly that in this situation. For later in this gospel, Jesus asks the question, For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall he give in exchange for his soul? Health and well-being is important to every one of us. Beloved, that's not the most important need of mankind today. Now we know Jesus healed many who suffered from paralysis. We know this according to Matthew chapter 4, verse 24. The states and his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with divers diseases and torments, and those that were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. All three synoptic gospels call attention not just to paralyzed individuals in general, but all three refer to this particular instance here. We have our text, Mark chapter 2, also in Matthew chapter 9 and Luke chapter 5. Now the situation is, as we understand it, these men were concerned for the physical well-being of their friend. We don't know if they were related or what. However, we know there was a great concern on their part. And they brought him to the house with the hope of Jesus healing this man of his physical condition. Well, they got there and they couldn't get in. 
The scripture tells us they couldn't approach the house because of the press. There were so many people, they couldn't get through the crowd. If you've ever been in an extremely crowded area, maybe a building or a subway terminal or some sort of a plaza during a celebration, and you know when everybody's shoulder to shoulder and there are literally thousands of people crammed into an area, it's hard to get through for one person, much less for four people carrying a bed. So they had a problem. Well, the scripture indicates they took this man, they went up onto the housetop, the rooftop there, and it was common in those days for homes to have a flat roof. They would have main beams going across the uh, the house and then smaller support beams. And on top of that, there were twigs, uh, branches, tile, and clay and different things to form the structure of the house. But it was a very loosely built house. It wasn't a solid structure like we're used to seeing on our buildings today. Well, they took this man up to the rooftop. They dug through the tile. They dug through the roof material. And they literally lowered him down into the room. We see that specifically in Luke chapter 5, verse 18. It says, Behold, men brought in a bed, a man which was taken with palsy, and they sought sought means to bring him and to lay him before him. And when they could not find by what way they might bring him in because of the multitude, they went upon the housetop and let him down through the tiling with his couch into the midst before Jesus. What we see right there, their aim was pretty good. Their calculations, wherever they went ahead and made that hole in the roof, they lowered this man right in front of Jesus. What we see in this event that unfolds now from this point forward are three important aspects about forgiveness and how they are clearly demonstrated. We're going to see the priority of forgiveness, the passion of forgiveness, and the power of forgiveness. Notice with me verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. There were two infirmities this man suffered from, but only one of them was obvious. He was suffering from palsy. The Greek word here is what we get our word paralytic or paralysis from and use today. All eyes in that room, no doubt, were fixed on this situation. Can you imagine? You're sitting there, and just like if we were sitting here today, and all of a sudden bits of debris start falling down on your head. You notice what in the world is going on, and you look, there's a hole in the ceiling, and then there's a bigger hole, and then all of a sudden there's somebody being lowered down on a bed. Man, that'd be an unusual church service, wouldn't it? Well, that's what you have happening here with this man being lowered down. And everybody looks at him. Everybody sees his condition is obvious. However, beyond his paralytic state, he had a greater infirmity that only one recognized. That, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw this man's need for forgiveness of sin. By the way, that's why Jesus came. You know, we think, well, he came to heal people of their sicknesses. He came to cast out demons. He came to raise the dead. Those are things he did in his earthly ministry. But he came, according to Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, to save his people from their sins. Now, what's interesting is Jesus appears to ignore the physical suffering and goes right to this man's soul's condition. 
people might have been wondering, didn't Jesus see this man was crippled? Was he indifferent to his suffering? Was he too focused on his teaching to care about the effort these men had taken to bring their friend to Jesus? Could he not see what everybody else saw? The fact is, only he saw what no one else did. Let me illustrate it this way. I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, have made a trip to a hospital emergency room at one time or another. They have hospital emergency rooms now, what is called a triage unit. Triage refers to the sorting of injured or sick people according to their need for emergency medical attention. It's a method of determining priority for who gets care first. So the idea is you go into the emergency room, you, you or somebody you're with might have a broken arm. Somebody they bring in after you might be having a heart attack. The triage unit is going to determine the severity of the condition of both patients and they're going to see the one that is in worse shape first. It's taking care of the most critical need first. Another role of the triage unit is if a patient has multiple injuries to determine what those injuries are, if they can the extent of those injuries, and which ones are more critical than the other. For example, let's say someone's in an automobile accident. They're brought in by ambulance and they have a broken arm, a ruptured spleen, and a punctured lung. The triage unit is probably not going to go ahead and send them down the hall to have their arm x-rayed and set in a cast first. They're going to be taking care of that spleen. They're going to be addressing that punctured lung first. They're going to take care of that which is most critical to the survival of that patient. Kind of what Jesus did in this situation. You have a man being lowered through the roof. It's obviously in bad shape. He has multiple conditions. And the Lord says, the paralysis, that's important, but not as important as this man's heart. This man's heart condition, his sin condition, needs to be addressed first. And that's exactly what Jesus did in this situation. He addressed the greatest need of this individual first. Why? Luke 19.10 For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. This man's greatest need was having his sins forgiven. Again, there's nothing wrong with providing food, clothing, medical care, or shelter to those who are in need. But we're falling short in our responsibility as Christians if we fail to point people to Jesus Christ and emphasize their need for the forgiveness of their sin. Why? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The scripture tells us the wages of sin is death. That's not just talking about physical death, but it's talking about eternal death, eternal separation from God in heaven, eternal separation from the bliss, the splendor, the joy of glory and being with the saints of God and with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is eternal death or eternal separation from the Lord. Everyone born into this world is born in sin. And they need to address this question 
of how will your sins be forgiven. Notice with me the second thought here this morning. We see the passion of forgiveness in verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. You see, when a man comes to Jesus for forgiveness, our Lord doesn't accuse that person of being a wicked individual. The Lord doesn't lay out all their sins before them. He doesn't find fault for everything they have ever done. When someone comes to the Lord, man, woman, boy, or child, for forgiveness, he doesn't begrudge or hesitate in receiving them to himself. No, when someone comes to Jesus, he responds with compassion. We see that in this verse with the use of the word son. This word son means a child. Jesus illustrates his compassion here by looking upon this man lying at his feet. And he saw this man as a child, weak, helpless, and simply believing, coming to him. Yes, Jesus responded to him just as any of us would respond to a child lying helpless at our feet with tenderness and compassion. For Jesus did say, Suffer the little children to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. He addresses this man as son, as a child, coming to him in childlike faith. Oh, what a joy to know. Jesus will accept tenderly and compassionately anyone who comes to him for forgiveness. John 6.35, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth in me shall never thirst. Verse 37, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Oh, aren't you glad to know that as we approach the Lord for forgiveness of sin, He doesn't say, no, you're too wicked, you're too vile, your sins are too numerous, I'll not have anything to do with you. No, Jesus said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What a joy to know His arms are standing wide open today, willing to welcome anyone unto Himself that will come in repentance and faith. For God is not willing that any should perish, but that all, all would be saved. God is willing to save whosoever will. No matter what theological position or dogma one might hold, their, their position is counter to the Word of God if they do not believe Jesus Christ died for the sin of the world and is willing to receive all who come unto Him. For Romans chapter 10 tells us, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus died that people might be saved and welcomes them to himself. What a joy to know he does so with compassion and tenderness and care. Just like the song we sing, Jesus is the sweetest name I know. There have been names I've loved to hear, but never has there been a name so dear to this heart of mine as the name divine the precious, precious name of Jesus. Jesus is the sweetest name I know. He's just the same as his lovely name. And that's the reason why I love him so. Oh, Jesus, the sweetest name I know. What a joy to know. 
God freely offers the gift of salvation to any who would come to him. And we're reminded that that wasn't just a passing offer during the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. For we see in Revelation 22 verse 17, as the book of Revelation comes to a close, the last invitation recorded in the word of God states, And the spirit and the bride say come, and let him that heareth come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Beloved, aren't you glad? Your name is contained in that word, whosoever. What a blessing to know that when I got saved, when I saw myself lost and on my way to hell, and I stood and had an evangelist showed me in God's word, Romans Road, and took me through the different verses of Scripture, when we got to, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He said, you can take that word whosoever and put your name right there. For God wrote that invitation to you as well as every other living soul on the earth. What a joy to know. The passion, the tenderness, the love of God is willing to receive any and everyone who come to the Lord. But notice again verse 5 with me. We see the power of forgiveness. We'll take a little bit of time here with this thought. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, notice, thy sins be forgiven thee. And then drop down to verse 11. Arise and take up thy bed and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all. Here in verse 5, the words faith and forgiveness indicate a genuine repentant belief on the part of this man and his friends. So how does he obtain forgiveness? By recognizing his lost condition and coming to the only one who could do something about it. This man and his friends realized his desperate condition and there was no one else to whom they could turn. Beloved, if only the the world would come to understand all the religious denominations, organizations, groups, sects, cults, whatever you want to call them. If everyone involved in any aspect of religious movement today would come to realize Jesus Christ and Him alone is the answer to man's greatest need. How do we know that? The scripture declares in Acts chapter 4 verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Jesus emphasized this during his ministry when he said in John chapter 14 verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And aren't you glad to know that Hebrews chapter 7 emphasizes this? Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. You see, what makes Christianity different from every other religious is its 
founder, its head. Jesus Christ is the founder of Christianity. It is named after him. Every other religion is different than Christianity in this regard. Jesus Christ is the only religious leader ever born and to have lived in this world who not only died but rose from the grave and lives today. Every other religion, their leader's dead, dead and gone. Or he may still be living today, but he's going to die. Jesus Christ is the only one who has gained a victory over death, hell, and the grave. He is the only one who can say, I have the keys to death and hell, according to Revelation chapters 1 and 2. What a blessing to know Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And not only did he rise from the grave, but he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father on high today. And he does make intercession for us. Oh, he's not disinterested in what's going on in this world today. He's not too busy to care about what you and I are concerned about. No, he cares about us and tells us to cast our care upon him, for he careth for you. That's why he sits in heaven making intercession for us. It means he's praying for us. He's concerned about us. His great love moved him to die for us. But his power that enabled him to actually save us. My love for you, it might be able to do a lot for you, but there's certain things it can't do. I can't save you. My love for you can't change you from a sinner to a saint. My love for you can't make you to be a Christian. But all the love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It was the love of God that nailed Jesus to the cross and it was the love of God that kept him on the cross. And it was his power that enabled him to prove he is God, to fulfill his word. Point is unmistakable. Jesus, in making this remark, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee, he is actually proclaiming to be the Son of God. And the people that were present got it. Not only so, the religious leaders that were present, they also picked up on that. This wasn't an innuendo. This wasn't something he was just slipping under so a few who were in touch with what he was talking about could pick up on it. No, this was a statement that everybody understood. He was proclaiming to be God. You see, the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body in Jerusalem, they were the head of the, uh, the Jewish religious order. They heard about a prophet up in Galilee. This is still early in our Lord's ministry. But they heard about this prophet named Jesus of Nazareth. They heard about him carrying on an unusual ministry. Performing miracles. Healing people. Doing all sorts of things. They heard about his teaching. And so they decided to send a delegation from Jerusalem up to Galilee to check this situation out. So they wanted to make sure this man wasn't teaching error. He wasn't leading people astray. He wasn't turning people away from the Jewish faith. So they sent this delegation to Capernaum to investigate Jesus. And they're mentioned in this passage of Scripture. When the scribes 
heard Jesus forgive this man's sin, they immediately began thinking about what was going on. Now understand, they're in a public setting, if you will. Well, it's in somebody's house, but it's public in that a lot of people in the community came to it. They also are in this setting, and they're hearing what's going on. We don't know if they're sitting together, if they're scattered around, but the idea is they're hearing what Jesus is saying, and immediately they start asking themselves questions such as, Why does this man thus blaspheme? Who can forgive sins but God only? Is he claiming to be God? Is he claiming to be the promised Messiah? And by the way, these questions were all logical and reasonable. But because Jesus knew what these men were thinking, Jesus being God, is omniscient, he knows all things, and he answered their questions before these men could verbalize their concern. So he responds with some divine logic of his own. We see that in verses 8 and 9. And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, take up thy bed, and walk. Wow. He put them on the spot, didn't he? See, the situation here is most people and religions in the world view Jesus only as a prophet, a great teacher, a great man, a martyr for his faith. In their minds, they could never grasp the concept, Jesus Christ is God and has the power to forgive sins. Now, if he could not forgive sins, then obviously he wasn't the son of God. Conversely, if he wasn't the Son of God, he couldn't have forgiven sins. And they would have been correct. He would have been speaking blasphemy. However, since he is the Son of God, since he did have the power to forgive sin, he did have the power to grant this man not only forgiveness, but healing. If only people in the world today would understand that. There is a God in heaven who can and will forgive sin. He has the power to do so. John 11, verse 25, Jesus saith, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth, liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She saith unto him, Lord... I believe thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. Beloved, that's the correct answer. When someone is asked, do you believe Jesus is the Christ? Note the proof of his power. Jesus simply spoke the word arise. And the man got up, rolled up his mat, and walked out. What greater evidence did those religious leaders need than to see this man healed according to the word of Jesus? Jesus purposely waited to heal the paralyzed man until after he declared his authority to forgive sins. He performed the miracle so that everyone watching would have proof, would have evidence that Jesus can and would do what he said. 
By the way, the title Son of Man, which he uses of himself here, is one of Jesus' favorite self-designations. He used it more than 80 times in the Gospel and 14 times here in the Gospel of Mark. That title identified both his humanity and his messiahship. Verse 10, But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He called their attention to the fact that he, as God, had the power to do what he said he would do. The fact that the paralyzed man rose and walked away was proof positive. A lot of folks today have heard about Jesus. They're familiar with the gospel message. They know about the Bible. Yet they still reject the invitation to trust him. It's because they doubt in his power. They do not believe he is the Son of God. Oh, beloved, if only people would come to understand that great truth. There are millions in heaven today and millions here on earth who with the songwriter of old can give testimony to the power of God, declaring, I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Thank God, Jesus saves. Let me close with this illustration. The result of this miracle, according to verse 12, is that God was glorified. And immediately he rose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw it on this fashion. You know, that's the goal, is that mankind might glorify God. Mankind might come to know Jesus as their Savior and give God the glory for this great joy. In the early and mid-1900s, much talk was made of the rise of novelists and short story writers in England. One such writer who enjoyed her share of fame was Marganita Lasky. Lasky made her mark in the world by writing essays and short stories, most notably about nuclear disarmament during a tumultuous time in the world. Lasky took a harsh position on the topic, often belittling those who did not agree with her. Her somewhat cold and hardened exterior also took root in her religious beliefs. She was born to Jewish parents. Lasky was an avowed atheist who made her beliefs, or her lack of beliefs, widely known. She scoffed at Christianity and boldly challenged anyone who believed in God to defend their ideas. As this lady grew older, a curious thing happened. Not long before she died in 1988, with a moment of surprising candor in a television interview, Marganita Lasky, the well-known novelist, secular humanist, and avowed atheist, said this, What I envy most about you Christians is your ability to forgive. I have no one to forgive me. How tragic that someone would step out into eternity not knowing there is one, the lovely Lord Jesus Christ, who will grant forgiveness of sin and bestow upon one the gift of eternal life. Again, one of the great differences between Christianity 
and all other religions is this concept of forgiveness. We asked the question this morning, what about forgiveness? Mark gives us a great illustration of how forgiveness is available to anyone and everyone through the Lord Jesus Christ.